Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachat Sukkah, daf Lamed Zayin, page 37. Okay, I feel like, Yerdena, we're in the cleanup stretch, right? Like, there's all these extra details that are really important, but they weren't in the, you know, up until now, we've been building the discussion of the Arba Minim, and here we've got kind of these holdover details that we're going to pay attention to now. And some of them, of course, are on the daf and are not going to be discussed by us today, because there's more details than we have time for in the nature of this um, pursuit. Okay, we have a statement from Rava. Rava Amar, kol The claim is that anything that is a beautifying, right, where you're coming to take your Arba Minim, and if you are now holding the right, the form Minim together, right, in some way, it's not going to be a chutzit. It's not going to chutzit. It's not going to be a chatzitza. A chatzitza is, I guess, a barrier that would get in the way of your fulfillment of the mitzvah. You know, we spoke before about not really binding them with something that is not in the nature of the lulav itself. But on the other hand, I don't know. What if you had something? I think the part of the question would be, what if you are wearing rings, right? This is a practical halachic side of things. If you, Some people will take off their rings before they take a little of an etrog, lest there be any, you know, chatzitza between the their hands, right, the rings on their hands, and the lulav. But the Rava's position here says anything that is lenoi, leneuto, for something that is beautiful, eno chatzitza. It's not a chatzitza. The Amar Rabbah, Rabbah has a lot to do with, it. he's quoted many, many times in this discussion of um, the Arba Minim. Amar Rabbah, Lo linkate inish hoshana besudra. So Rabbi says, yeah, but don't take the four species with a cloth, meaning don't, you know, hold them um, where you're holding a handkerchief, let's say, and you have that wrapped around your, your arba minim. That's not what it means, right? Rabbi is, is taking issue with Rava's point to say, as long as that, you're not, you're not going that far. Dibaina lakicha. Tama, because we need a taking. You need to take the minim, and the position is Rabbah's position is you take them with your hands in your hand, not in a in a handkerchief. Um, and in the handkerchief, you would not you would not have you would not fulfill lekicha the taking of the four minim. The Rava Amar lekicha al shma lekicha. And Rabbi says, "What are you kidding me? Of course, it's still taking. Meaning, so you're holding a handkerchief, but so you've got some foreign object between you and the four meaning that you have now taken to yourself, and you're going to make your bracha and you're going to do your nanuim, the wavings of the of the four meaning. According to Rava, that's fine. According to Rabbi, that goes too far. Okay, now we're gonna jump down. I'm gonna get to the top of them a bit. Um, where more statements by Rabbi." Ama Raba, Raba again, Rish Bet Hey, as opposed to Rish Bet Aleph, which is Rava. Ama Raba, Lo Ladutz Inish Lava Bahushana. So Raba says as follows Once you put them together, the Hadas and the Arava and the Lulav, he says, once you put the Hadas and the Arava together, then don't put the Lulav, Lo Ladutz Inish Lulava Bahushana, don't put your Lulav into the binding of the four species at that time, because what would happen if into the binding, if you if leaves fall off the others, the Aravot and the Anadasim, and then they fall into the, the thing that you're holding, again, I don't have a good word for this, because it's all, I, I, I like to call it an egged, but I'm not sure that that's accurate, um, that the leaves then might then be a barrier, a chatitza between 
the conjunction of the four species, or really these three of the four species together, are those leaves that have fallen off, which can no longer be counted as part of any one of them, is that going to be a chitzitz of a rava amar, min bimino eno chutzitz. As you might expect from the previous debate between the two of them, rava's position is, the moment you've got min bimino, meaning the same kind of object, item, in this case, produce, right? It's leaves from hadas are as compared to the branch of the Hadassim that has leaves on it, right? So he says, that's not a concern. That is not a chatzitza. Okay. Next, Vama Rabba, another statement by Rabba. Lo le goz inish lulava bahoshana de mishtaire chutza. I'm sorry, chutza. So Rabba says, a person should not cut the lulav to shorten it. One, uh, the Gemara says this, I guess, in a way that's a little bit backwards from the syntax that we would use, right? Once you put the lulav into its binding with the arba minim, don't cut it there. Don't cut it once it's already in the binding. Because what if the leaves now of the lulav, what if they become detached? And perhaps that would become some kind of chatzitza, some kind of barrier interposition between the four minim coming together and um, and the leaves themselves. As you could expect, Rava disagrees. He says it's fine because, of course, the leaves that have come off are still... They are the same species. And one more statement, two more, three more statements from Rabbah. Rabbah says, don't, don't smell, don't sniff the smell of the, of the Hadassim, right? Once you're using it for the mitzvah of the Arba Minim, it's prohibited to smell it for your, just for enjoyment. Etrog shall mitzvah mutar l'arechbo, as compared to the etrog, according to Rabbah, as compared to the etrog, which you're still using it for the mitzvah of the but for the etrog, you could smell it. But the hadasim, he says, don't. My tama, what's the rationale? Hadas l'arecha kai ki akitze merecha akitze, etrog l'achila kai ki akitze merechila akitze. So the distinction is as follows. The hadasim are are harvested to begin with when it's not a matter of a little of an etrog, they are harvested for their scent, for their fragrance. So then when you set it aside to be a mitzvah, you want to make sure that you're, you're using it for the mitzvah and not because you happen to enjoy the fragrance, right? But an etrog, really what you're supposed to do with an etrog when it's not for the arba minim is eat it. Sorry, your Danny, you said it's a funny f- food fruit that people don't always eat except for your etrog jelly. Well, so in this case, at least in the time of the Gemara, the presumption is fruit and it should be eaten. I don't know that the flavor of it is all that nice as much as the smell for that matter. But then because it would otherwise be set aside for eating, then when you come to smell it, you're, nobody's questioning that you're using it for anything other than the mitzvah. Because if you're using it for something other than the mitzvah, you would be eating it, not smelling it. Okay, so that's Rabbi's position about, I don't know, extraneous use, I guess or a smelling of these two items, which the both of them have a very pleasant smell. Another statement by Rabbi, but if it's attached, if your myrtles are still attached to the to the ground, right, to the tree, um, then you could smell it. But an etrog, do not smell it when it's attached to the tree. That is prohibited. Why? My tama. So the Gemara says, well, the same way that we've just said before, right? That the the Hadassim, the myrtle, is there. People primarily use it to smell it. 
So if you smell it, once you, if you smell it attached, then you're not going to bother to cut it to continue smelling it, which is an interesting presumption because I don't know why you wouldn't, right? If you like it so, mel- so much attached, why wouldn't you just cut it and carry it away with you? But that's the, that's the given, meaning once you've smelled it, you don't need it anymore. So you can smell it because that will prevent you from smelling it later, you know, once it's, if it would be detached from the ground, from the tree, as opposed to an etrog, where the etrog, the whole point of it, again, is to be eating it. So you don't want to smell it because if you smell it, then you might come to cut it from the tree for the purpose of eating it when the whole idea is really want to use it for the Arba Minim. And one last statement from Rabba, and then I'm going to turn this over to you, Yardina. Va'ama Rabba. Lulav biyamin ve'etrog b'smol. Now we got real directions of how to take a lulav and etrog. You take the lulav, bound together with the other the two other species, right? Meaning the the hadasim and the arava, and you take the lulav biyamin in your right hand and the etrog in your left hand. The Gemara presupposes that everybody is a righty. There are certainly people who do the opposite if they are lefties, and there are people who are lefties who do exactly this. So the practice is a little bit more complicated or potentially more complicated. Maitama, what's the rationale that you would take the, the lulav in your right and your etrog in your left? Hani tlata mitzvot, v'hai chada mitzvah. The Gemara says, well, these three, these species together are three mitzvot, meaning and lulav together are three. And the, and the lulav, I'm sorry, the etrog is only one. Amr le rabbi yirmi le rabbi Zerika, my tam loma varchinan ella al nitilat lulav. So then, why do we say al nitilat lulav? Right? Why? We, right? That's that's the formulation of the bracha of this mitzvah, right? Al nitilat lulav. Why don't we say nitilat arbaminim? Something, right? Ho'il v'gavoa mikulan. So the Gemara answers because it's the tallest of them, and so therefore gets the most attention. We we speak about it because it is, you know, up there that we we look up to it. and We're gonna. Um, give it the honor, I guess, or maybe it's just the default one because it's taller, you speak about it the most. Um, so the idea is so then the Gemara says, well, let him hold the etrog higher than the than the lulav, and then the lulav will be higher. Meaning you could make your bracho holding the etrog high up in the air over your lulav. So then Rabbi Zrika says, but the tree here is the tallest of the trees, meaning the 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 hadasim, the aravot, the etrog, apparently are all lower to the ground trees than the 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 palm branch, I guess, of the lulav itself. Which is interesting because certainly there are, there are aravot that grow close to the ground, but there are also aravot that, you know, if you have a weeping willow tree, those can grow very very large. So, but the presumption here is very clear. The it's not just which of your four species that you're holding in your hands is taller, but it's the tree itself is the tallest one, and therefore we're going to default um, to to calling it by the lulav. Um, this, I think, of all these different statements of Rabbah and and his cohort, whoever he's talking to, this particular point I think is, I don't know, kind of the least convincing. I'm not convincing, but I, I would say the reason we call it the lulav is because the lulav is the backbone of the thing that we're holding, meaning it makes sense to me that we would call it the love in part, of course, because that's what we do, but also because it is the, it is the thing that you're holding. I mean, the, the two other species uh, it, adorn it, right? They are, it's accoutrements, and the main thing in your hand is the lulav. And we say lulav and etrog, 
right? We say Arba Minim, all four, or we say Lulav, or we say Lulav and Etrog, because indeed, one's on the right and one's on the left. Uh, well, I'd like to see how now we're getting into sort of the more granular piece of like, how is this mitzvah actually done? And again, it's one of these things, there's not a lot of text or instruction in the Torah itself. Um, and this sort of goes straight into the Mishnah, which was the piece I wanted to read, the Heichan Hayum right? When do you actually wave it? And so it says, right? So when you read this part of Hallel, this is a part from Tehillim chapter 118, verse 1, and later in verse uh, 29, right? Uh, right? So this is also in the same chapter of Tehillim, uh, 118, uh, verse 25. Um, and that's what Dibre Beit Hillel. Beit Shammai says you also wave it when you say we obviously don't do it this way. Um, and this is, you know, that's the second part of that same verse. I'm a Rabbi Akiva. So, right? He once was watching Rabbi Gamliel and Rabbi Yoshua. Shakolam Hayuminaninin at Lulavehan. All the people were waving their lulavim. The Hamlo Nanu Ella Ba'ana Hashemoshiana. They only waited in Ana Hashemoshiana. So Rabbi Akiva is bringing, obviously, a story to illustrate what the halacha actually is. And so then the Gemara wants to ask just an overall question about this, right? Right? So, like this whole idea of waving, right? Who mentioned it? In other words, where does it come from? You just have this Mishnah that all of a sudden mentions that we wave the lulav. And all of us reading the Mishnah know that we wave the lulav. But the truth is, we're already on top. There's been no discussion about waving this lulav. Up until now, it just seemed to lakachtem, right? Like you're just going to take these arbaminim, but there's no talk about actually talk about uh, waving them. And so they say kai, right? So we're saying that this is what it's based on. And it's talking about the Mishnah that's actually on a previous which says, right? When we had the Mishnah that talked about what makes for a kosher or non-kosher lulav, a lulav that is at least three tefachim high, in order that you can wave it, right? To fulfill that mitzvah. But in other words, that's a very... That's a hint. That's a roundabout way. It's not saying part of the mitzvah that you need to fulfill is that you have to be able to wave it. Instead, it's in the context of, you know, how do we uh, how do we make sure that we did our mitzvah okay? You know, we need to make sure we have a lulav that's long enough. Right? And so now, so once we've established it in that previous Mishnah, the one of the lulav that it needs to be waved, now this Mishnah, the Tan is coming to say, how do we actually wave it? But again, it's very roundabout. It's not hatam. And so then we learn in the Mishnah later on. This is a Mishnah in Menachos. And Dav Samach Aleph, Amad Aleph. So now we're talking about waving. And this has to do with what some of the, what was offered on the, the holiday of Shavuot, where you had two loaves and two lambs. Okay. And so the question is, how do you do it? So you would take the two loaves and put them on top of the two lambs. And then he would put his hands underneath them. And he waves them, you know, to and fro to each side. He raises and lowers them. So you go sort of side to side, up and down. 
Shenemar Asher Hunat Vasher Huran. And here they quote a Pasuk actually from Shmot, chapter 29, verse 27, which says it's waved and it's lifted. So this indicates that waving somehow involves going side to side and going up and down. Rabbi Yochanan says he moves it to and from the four directions, right? Um, and then he raises it and lowers it to, sorry, let me say this again. The first part is he goes to and from the four directions that are his, meaning the directions that are Hashem, and then raises and lowers it to show Hashem that Hashem owns. Right. So he moves the tune from to stop the harmful winds. Right. Because remember, this is right the beginning of rainy season when you would do this waving. Um, right, he raises the Lord in in order to stop the harmful dews, right? So that in the, and the rain that comes from that comes. Amarosi bar abin itame Rabbi Yosi bar zvida zoto merit. So right, Rabbi Yosi bezvela says right. Right, these pieces, this non-essential or sort of the. Uh, are there to make sure that we avert uh, calamity, right? Right? Um, because, but still, what we'll do, it will stop harmful winds and dews. So this is pretty amazing what's here. In other words, there seems to be some sort of, I, I don't know, we're saying in a way that we somehow like, are we symbolically controlling nature or we're doing something that we believe that by waving these things, we somehow will control the outcome or influence the outcome of, you know, what, what the rainy season uh, will be like. And I think from a theological point of view, you know, normally we think of like we do mitzvah because God just tells us we have to do a mitzvah. And here, there's this emphasis that, no, we're doing a mitzvah because it will actually change something in how we experience the physical world. So I want us just to sit with that because to me, that is a deeply interesting theological statement. Finally, this section of the Gemara concludes, right? So Rabbi says, and also, this is the same thing with Lulav. Right, so Rabbi says this is the same thing you do with a lulav that you raise it to and from and up and down for the same reasons. And Rav Achabar Yaakov would say you would move the lulav to and from. He would say this is an arrow in the eye of the satan, right? Um, uh, and the Gemara says this is not proper. You shouldn't mention the satan. Why? Because then you'll actually bring the satan to actually come. So this whole concept of waving, right? And again, are we talking about waving the lulav, waving this thing that we do on Shavuos? But the idea is, is somehow waving, you know, it, it, it changes something. Uh, in we, we hope to have some influence over the natural world. But we end it with, yeah, but if you invoke the satan, that you shouldn't talk about because that will actually bring about something 
bad. So I, I found this piece of Gemara to be just fascinating. And I, I think this speaks to that there's a lot that we do on Sukkot itself that has this real mystical element. It's Lulav, it's Hoshanos, it's the Niso Chamaim, right? We haven't even gotten to that, the Simchas Beis Eva. There is a series of mitzvot that we do where we are taking sort of physical elements in the world and either waving them, walking around with them, pouring them, and it's not really clear, like, what is it? What, what is our kavanah supposed to be when we do those things? What's our intention? I remember my father once telling me that, he, you know, he once asked his Rebbe, Rabbi Scheinberg, not the one that many people know from Israel, but his brother, um, who's my father's Rebbe. And he said to him, like, what's your kavanah for Hoshanos? And he said, really, your kavanah is just supposed to be that you were commanded to do Hoshanos. But I, I think this touches upon something that's very unique to Sukkot that we do these things with these natural pieces of the world, right? The Arba Minim, the water, the Hoshanos, and, and they do have some type of mystical properties to them. And actually, when you there's a paragraph you're supposed to read before you do the Hoshanos, which talks about that this is a very ancient minhag, and it was something the Nevi'im did, did, and it conjures and it, sort of all of these uh, mystical things in the world. And so I think we, we're seeing that on the pages of the Gemara, itself, but this is not the way we typically talk about mitzvot. For sure not. Um, I think that this rationale behind the scenes, so to speak, is very powerful, very moving. And I think also, I feel like I've said this before, and if I haven't, I'm sure I'll say it again. Whenever Chazal invoke the Satan, um, it is my understanding that it's a, a hint to the fact that whatever it's about, right, whenever that Satan shows up, it's something that is, I would say, beyond human comprehension. And so the Satan shows up in the context of the Akedah, of, of the, you know, demand that God, from God, the command from God that Avram would sacrifice Isaac. And um, he shows up in the context all over the place for the Yamim Noraim, right, where we're going to talk about exactly how God meets out justice and reward and punishment in the world. And it's, again, it's really fundamentally beyond human comprehension. I think in this context, when we're talking about the rain and we're talking about the winter season and the needs that, that really the people have for, for everything to grow. I think this idea that there's a, a prayer in the mitzvah of the, you know, it's like a, a roundabout way. It's not prayer in terms of the words of it as much as in the, the behavior of it, the conduct of it, right? That we have a prayer in the mitzvah itself, which is again, like, let this not be something that we don't understand. Meaning let there be rain in the rainy season, let it all work the way it's supposed to. And I think that there's, um, you know, coming off of the heels of the Yamim Noraim and going into Sukkot and then coming in and then from there into the winter, I think that this, um, it's a very human, real reflection. Like on the one hand, it's got this mystical element, but on the other hand, it's very grounded, I think. Yeah, I agree. But I want to see if this theme gets picked up more as we continue in this Masachet, because I was really taken by this on, the, uh, uh, on this stuff. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.